Way up in the mountains, you'd expect to be served a hot chocolate or a hot toddy, but a rum sour? You would think that's more of a beach cocktail. Thanks to our guest today, you would be wrong. It's home right here in Crested Butte, Colorado. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. I'm not sure why anyone would doubt that Karen Hoskin could create a rum distillery in the Colorado mountains. This is a woman who was an elite firefighter. There is probably nothing she couldn't do. She was in London for the UK Rum Fest when I had a chance to discover what led her to open Montagna Distillers high above sea level. But first, don't forget to head over to LushLifeCocktailTours.com to buy your ticket to the tastiest tour in town. London town, that is. Soho, to be more exact. You'll be introduced to some of the most famous bars and bartenders in London all while sipping their celebrated cocktails and learning about Soho's drinking history. We even have gift vouchers, so buy your ticket now and enjoy it later, after you hear Karen's story. Now, let's get on with the show. Why don't you tell me about your background? Well, I was born in the Bronx. Um, I've my parents knew from day one that they were going to get out of the Bronx at some point, but my dad was in law school and they were living in this tiny little apartment that you could basically touch both walls of the apartment at the same time. Um, so when the kids came along, they bailed to Maine and I grew up in Maine. Um, were your parents from the Northeast originally? They're from outside of New York City, okay. Bronxville. So they're mm-hmm. Westchester County folk. Um, but my parents knew so early on that they wanted to be in Maine. My dad's parents had a little cottage up in Maine that they would go to in the summer, and they just loved it. So uh, we moved to Maine, and I lived there all the way until I went off to college when I was 18. Mm-hmm. And where, where did you stay in the Northeast for college? I did. I went to Williams College, which is up in the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts, a little lib- liberal arts college. But an incredible education. And I always joke and say the liberal arts education just basically teaches you how to not say no. You know, it's it's this thing about, um, of course I can do that. I don't care what it is. I'll figure it out. I know how to figure it out. I have the tools to figure it out. My dad always said that the liberal arts education taught you how to think. Yes. I don't know if that's true where you get out knowing how to think, but that's why it wasn't so important to know your trade yet. Because he had been like, oh, biology, biology, I'm going to be a doctor. And he's like, wait a sec, I forgot to learn how to think about anything else. So I totally agree with you. My kids are both in universities where they started on day one with their major. And I've always thought that was a little sad. I'm like, take philosophy, take Buddhism. Um, I I want them to have a more well-rounded education than just their field. But um, that's what I did. So saying that, I guess you didn't know really or please correct me if I'm wrong, what you wanted to do when you grew up kind of going into university? Not even coming out of university. (laughs) I didn't have a clue. When I left college, I just got in my car and drove to San Francisco. I had no idea what kind of job I was going to look for. I had no idea what work I wanted. I just knew that I was somewhat obsessive about 
some of the same principles that I'm obsessive about now, sustainability, social responsibility, taking care of people. Um, so I went and worked for a political consulting firm in San Francisco for quite a while. Uh, but you thought San Francisco or at least California would have those answers I as did. opposed to East Coast? I did. I sort of saw San Francisco as this shining beacon of you know, liberalism and all of the things that I cared about at the time. Um, and so I was going to go check it out. And working on political campaigns in San Francisco was quite an education. And it was right about the time that the protests against the, um, Af- you know, the war in Afghanistan were happening. And so they were flipping cars and lighting things on fire in the streets of San Francisco in 1990. Um, and so I was really in the middle of something. Were you like, yes, yes, this is exactly what I wanted to be, where I wanted to be. And we were no, like, I should have gone to East Coast. <laughs> exactly. I was like, wow, this is a little extreme for me. But mm-hmm. So, um, well, San Francisco, there's, you know, a bar scene there. Did you have anything to oh do with gosh. that bar scene? I did, except that I was pretty dead broke. That was the biggest problem of my whole time in San Francisco was that I was a political organizer. I wasn't making any money. I had a really expensive, beautiful apartment uh, with some friends from school. And um, so I, what I got better at than going to bars was creating a bar in my own beautiful apartment where all of my friends would come and I would make cocktails all evening. Uh, So that was early, early on for me. That was an identity that I had in my dorm room in college because I didn't drink beer and didn't go to those keg parties. I would always make cocktails in my room and friends would come over and we'd have more of this sort of, you know, sultry, uh, sophisticated environment than the sort of hammerhead keg parties of, of school. So and now correct me if I'm wrong, but it is age 21 to drink. Was it then when it you was, were, it was. Yes. not when I was at Williams though? Well, it wasn't because some states had changed. Cause when I was 19 in New York, yeah. you could still drink. You you could there's a grandfather over, clause over the borders of Vermont. And we, which was only like five minutes away. So we'd ride our bikes out to Vermont in college and buy alcohol in the Vermont liquor stores and legally, and then come back. So why why rum? Why why or should I say why couldn't you drink beer? Celiac. Um, I was uh, not oh. diagnosed then, but I just knew that it made me feel terrible. Okay. Um, and there were a lot of foods that made me. I'm feel sure terrible. a lot of people didn't know they were celiac then. It took a long time to, mm-hmm. until about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I love that you were that you know you were already a bartender in college. Yeah, well, I had bartending jobs in the summer in Bar Harbor, Maine, and okay. I and in Camden, Maine, and in Portland, Maine, and I would get these jobs in these really high-end bars, and the things we were making back then are kind of hilarious now, like amaretto sours and, you know... Um, My favorite, fuzzy navel. I'm fuzzy sure. navels and white Russians, and, you know, we didn't know how uncool that was going to eventually be. Um, I think it's retro now. It's so it maybe yeah. cool. <laughs> Well, I make a drink in my bar that is like a white Russian, but it's made with really good rum. And, you know, we make our own coffee infusion. And so there are ways to elevate even some of those original cocktails. Um, But I, I just, from an early time, I loved making cocktails for people. But I also recognized that I didn't love gin. Gin made me sick. Mm -hmm. Um, Vodka was just boring. It didn't have any benefit to the cocktail. 
uh, whiskey was too much. It was like a punch in the face when I was 20, 21. Uh, but rum just was my spirit from mm-hmm. such an early time. And then I would start looking around for better and better rums. Um, Do so- you remember the first ones? Can you... I mean, it was a while ago, but... Oh, yes. I remember exactly where I was, exactly what I was doing. I was um, in India for, you know, a college year in India. And um, I went to a bar in Goa. And I was sitting at the bar talking to this bartender. And he kept trying to feed me, um, you know, port and all these really fortified wines in general. And they just weren't to my taste at that point. I've developed a bit of a taste for them Mm -hmm. now, but um, when he handed me this Old Monk rum, which is not the most fantastic rum, it's over-sweetened, it's over-colored, it's it's not considered to be a premium rum, Mm -hmm. but to me, at the age of 20, 19, it was a premium rum, and um, it was aged. So it was the first time I tasted that robust kind of flavor of age on a spirit. And that was the beginning for me where I thought, this is the spirit I'm going to become more educated about. I mean, I find better and better versions of this. And that just led to a lifetime of exploration. What's interesting to me is that you, you found you didn't like beer, but you still wanted to drink something. And so... You know, you you did skip over that you were a bartender <laughs> during college <laughs> um, and that you still wanted to enjoy alcohol. That was definitely a part of your life. Sure. Even in college, well, you know, when I was thinking, oh, I'm going to drink this horrible stuff. Obviously, it didn't make yeah. me sick, but I drank a lot of really bad beer without even thinking about, you know, oh, maybe there's something else out there other than the fuzzy navel. Well, and I think that's an, a reality of being celiac is you just start to figure out what is it that's going to make me not feel awful Mm. the next day because it's not like a hangover it's like it's like the flu Mm. right so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is what can I consume this is what all my friends are doing everybody's hanging out and drinking um how can I come up with a way to do this that is sustainable for me where the next day I'll wake up and feel great. Mm-hmm. So the, that first sip of rum on that beach in India, I just remember waking up the next morning after being with all these Brits who were there for a yoga retreat. And we drank fairly, you know, it wasn't heavily because I never have been a heavy drinker. But we had some cocktails that night. And I woke up the next morning feeling like a million bucks. I went out and like ran on the beach and... I thought that's how I want to feel the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and as a bartender, you know, you can't help but be aware that you're purveying things to other people that you want them to feel good the next day too. Mm-hmm. You want them to wake up and feel like they had an experience and not a headache. Um, and so that became kind of a, a thing for me as a bartender was how can I give my consumers an experience that's going to make them feel okay the next day. Of course. Um, Now, when you went back to the States after your time in India, were you looking for Old Monk? You know, did you originally go, oh, I've got to find this stuff again? And you did. And or I was going to say, if you didn't find it, how long, like, did you have to then, or should I say, did your rum education begin then? Did you? It really began then Uh um, because this was more than 30 years Mm. ago uh there weren't great premium rums on any shelf of any liquor store it was all just the mass market brands for the most part 
but I started trying to find some more premium styles that were that I could actually buy. When you said that about Old Monk, um, there was a must have been a brand ambassador for Old Monk in Massachusetts at the time because all that these is really early on they have someone uh, something I don't know yeah uh-huh. it, and so every now and then you'd see it on the shelf of a bar in Boston and I would go to Boston on a fairly regular basis for various school related things and I would find Old Monk and that was just like a you know that first. That first thing that you have an amazing experience with, it when you when you taste it again, it's like it conjures up not only what you tasted, but also where you were, who you were with, what your memories of that time are, and they're so mm-hmm. sacred and special. And so even though I don't drink old monk now, it's sacred to me. And when I was in India a couple of years ago, I hiked nine miles from a dry state in India into a state where you could buy alcohol just to buy a tiny bottle of Old Monk just for old time's sake. I hope someone from Old Monk is listening to this. <laughs> but, you know, really there wouldn't be a Montagna if there were hadn't been an Old Monk. No, so it's definitely wouldn't. related. All right. Well, we, we still have a lot to get to before we <laughs> talk about Montagna. So you came back from India or you're in a political consultant yes. in um, San Francisco making your own bars, house a bar, Um, you know, what were the steps? Of course, there are a lot of steps, but to get to start Montagna between, you know, the drinking the first glass to, um, to setting up your own shop, really. Well, I, I knew pretty quickly when I got to San Francisco that I was going to have to get out. I'm not a city person. Uh, And it took going to San Francisco, you know, after growing up in Maine, being in the Berkshires, it was really my first urban living experience, and it was pretty quick that I figured out that that was not my thing. I spent my weekends, this was in the early days of mountain biking, and I spent my weekends with my mountain bike out in the Marin Headlands, mm-hmm. you know, just out of the city. Um, because San Francisco, if there's any city that's the most outdoory kind of city, that's San Francisco. <laughs> it was a fairly good fit that way, uh-huh. but to be broke in San Francisco you know, with, with a mountain riots. bike and riots. And I was I was consuming too much news, I discovered. They had the morning paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, and then they had the evening paper, the Examiner. And I was listening to a lot of NPR. And I just at some point, I was like, I can't, I can't work in political consulting all day. Read the paper in the morning, read the paper at night, listen to NPR on my commute in my company car. Like, I, you know, I was... It was a pretty sweet gig, but Mm -hmm. I just couldn't do it anymore. I knew that. It was sort of crushing my soul. Um, And so my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, um, was living in Flagstaff, Arizona. He was an environmental consultant. uh, And he wrote me this tiny little note, uh, handwritten on a piece of paper that said, just got a new apartment, plenty of room for two. And so I packed up my car not long after that and drove to Flagstaff, Arizona, where I didn't have a job, prayed that I was going to get something. And, you know, again, my husband is famous for always saying, well, what do you want to do? And I think about it. And in this case, I said, I want to be a hotshot, which is a wildland firefighter. Oh, boy. So I um, got 
a job with a fire crew. As soon as I got there, it was perfect timing. I moved in May, got a job with a fire crew, and um, that was the beginning of an era of schlepping a chainsaw through the woods for a long time and just really pushing myself physically in the mountains, fighting fires. It was, you know, not the mo- not like it is now where it's just raging in all directions mm-hmm. quite often. But we had some scary, intense fire experiences and um, taught me a lot about myself and my courage and my capacity. You are fearless. <laughs> that does not come, across, you know, in the other interviews I have listened to. That doesn't, that, yes. Yeah, so you know, that, that was a that lovely period of time. It also solidified my relationship with my now husband, who we've been together for 30 years. And um, But it also was when I looked at the whole idea of starting a brewery because I could sense and I could feel this craft brewing thing coming. And I absolutely loved it. I loved everything about it except the beer. Uh, Was there a lot of that happening in Flagstaff at that time? No, but but soon after Mm -hmm. it was printing money, you know, so like the, the new breweries started up maybe two years after we were flirting with that idea and we just we we realized that this was my husband and me together. Mm-hmm. We realized we didn't have enough money. We realized we really wanted to travel more. That we were going to be anchored to this business for five to ten years with you know just all of our hearts and souls. And that I didn't love beer. And so I was going to you know be like <laughs> that would have been the first thing. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding, ding, ding. But what's interesting to me, God, I keep saying that, but is that you you're while you're firefighting you're thinking about creating something and that you have that entrepreneurial instinct. I want to start something. Um, Why do you think it, it developed into this idea of a brewery? What what do you think, you know, Um, what was it about that creative process? I think I've always been attracted to being a maker. Um, But I'm, you know, my, I know what my skills are and what they aren't. So I don't like to sew. I don't like to, um, you know, paint. Um, and so my whole career from that moment on became being a maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I decided not to do the brewery. Um, but well, why, since you're a rum drinker, why do you think it became a brewery, not then a rum distillery? Because it wasn't even a concept then. Like, there was whiskey being made in Kentucky, basically. But this was so far prior to the craft spirits movement. If I had had a, you know, an inkling in that moment that you could make a distillery in in Flagstaff, Arizona, believe me, I would have probably jumped on Mm -hmm. it. But I also probably would have driven it into the ground because I didn't have enough money and I didn't have people I knew who could back me. Mm -hmm. And so, and it wasn't a thing. So people would have been like, what are you doing making rum? I mean, they were like that, you know, (laughs) years later when I did do it. But um, I just think it was, would have been premature. Mm -hmm. So I had to spend some time cultivating some more skills, I think, saving some money and um, doing some other things that would give me more confidence um, to, you know, go that route later. Well, when you decided that you weren't going to do the brewery, did you shelve that idea of creating some kind of spirit? 
like in the back of your brain or did you just, I mean, you must have obviously because we're sitting here talking about your, your own <laughs> distillery, but you know, at that time, can you remember, you know, putting it back somewhere and thinking, all right, I might revisit this later, but I'm not sure how it's going to. I'm not sure I remember out. putting it away then, but uh-huh. I definitely remember pulling it back out uh-huh. later when I started to feel that exact same feeling only about spirits, you know? So I thought I I started to imagine that this was going to be the next boom was craft spirits. And this was before there were, maybe there were two or three that I knew of Mm -hmm. at the time, like Tudhill town in New York was just starting, um, and Stranahan's and some of those really cool early distillers, but they were all making whiskey. And, um, But I remember when I started to feel that again, I was like, oh, I remember when I felt this about breweries and look what happened with them. Mm -hmm. You know, they just blew up and boomed and, you know, went crazy all over the United States and still are. And so I thought, I'm not going to miss this one. Um, So so I I know I skipped a long Uh period of time in between there, but um that was really the moment where I was like, okay, this is my, this is my chance. I've got money in the bank. Um, I've traveled the world and gotten that out of my system. I have two kids and they're, you know, they'll be fine Mm -hmm. (laughs) if I work a little, I don't necessarily want to be on the move as much. So I'm settled in a place where I can really focus on something. And I had just been to Guatemala and discovered the whole mountain tradition of rum. So there was like this perfect storm of, mm-hmm. of, uh, the ding, ding, ding you talked about only the, it was like, yes, everything was a yes. This is the right thing. It's the right time. It's the right place. It's the right concept. All right. Well, let's set that scene. So you're fighting fires <laughs> doing incredible things for the world. Um, but I know that you live in Colorado now. Mm-hmm. So what was the move from Flagstaff to then get to Colorado? Global climate change. Um, we were living right on the edge of the painted desert. So we were um, about 40 minutes outside of Flagstaff. We had built a really sustainable house. Um, so solar powered off the grid Um you know, all of our water was hauled. Um, and we started to just feel this creeping weather change. So the first years that we were there, there were 300 inches of snow on the San Francisco peaks. We were backcountry skiing all the time. Um, and then it was like no snow. And so we would start making, my husband and I are both kind of obsessive backcountry and Nordic skiers. And um, we started migrating further and further north to try to find the snow Mm -hmm. we ended up in silverton colorado which was just getting hammered with snow back then and um we finally bought a little tiny piece of land up there and we thought we'll build ourselves a little cabin up there that we can go and that'll be our our escape from this encroaching heat challenge in in arizona i remember so clearly like on the days that we would be planning to leave for Colorado, just like feeling the heat so overwhelmingly and just being like, I have to get out of here. Mm -hmm. I'm not a hot weather person. So we would make these migrations up there and then we built this cabin in Silverton. And then we both just cracked up because we looked at each other one day and we're like, 
we're moving to this cabin, aren't we? Like we had never talked about it. Um, it wasn't even really big enough for our family for, um, but we just both knew that that was kind of what was happening. So we rented our house in Flagstaff and moved to Silverton in, oh my gosh, 2001, I guess. So, um, and it was just the most amazing thing. We went from being off the grid, 40 minutes outside of town to being right in the middle of town in this community that is just incredibly tight knit. And, um, and that was when the idea of the distillery really began to ferment. Now, while this was happening, um, you said you were in Guatemala, but were you like training your rum tongue? You know, what were you always traveling and drinking different kinds of rum? You know, what was that kind of rum education? Sure. Um, well, I, you know, again, I was the person who, for whatever reason, was always making the cocktails everywhere at my family gatherings with my, you know, my parents, my grandparents' cottage in Maine went down to my parents and then my father died and I inherited it. And so we would go to Maine and it would be like a family gathering and I would be making mojitos when nobody knew what a mojito was back in the day. And um, I started infusing, because of my time in India, I started infusing rum with the spices of chai. This was forever ago. Like I can't even, I can't even tell you before I had kids, my kids are now 19 and 21. Mm-hmm. So um, I started infusing rum with chai spices and then making these, you know, homemade ginger beers and ginger ales and um, making these cocktails that we is now my most popular cocktail on my menu and my rum bar is called the Maharaja. And it's those cocktails cultivated over another 10 years of evolution. Um, but my rum tongue was still pretty uncultivated then. I don't think I really had tasted enough really good rum um, because it was so hard to find. So I would use Methuselah or I would use Ranzacapa or I would, you know, I still understood that there was a difference between mass market Bacardi and the terrible Malibus and the spiced rums and things like that. And these, what are now sort of not the high grade versions of the aged rums. Um, But I wasn't there yet. I didn't totally understand that. And Um, And maybe I still don't because I still have a lot of affinity for some of those early experiences of mine with rum. Um, I'm kind of a, I'm not very sanctimonious or snobby about rum. Mm -hmm. My feeling is people should find a rum that they like. And then over time, it will change. You know, they're going to taste something new and they're going to get excited about something different. And over time, they're going to cultivate their discernment or their interest in it. So I'm not willing to sort of make anybody feel bad. Oh, no, about and then they'll like. go back to the first one and love it still because it reminds them of everything. Please, I love Hershey's exactly. chocolate. I get so much stick about that Thanks. in England <laughs> because it was the first chocolate I ever ate. So I totally, yeah. you know, I can appreciate it's, the green and blacks and whatever. But well, and Hershey's smell kiss. is so associated with mm-hmm. our experience, right? So all of our memories can be really heavily associated with smell. And that's what I remember the most of that first sip of rum was like just the smell of it, the butterscotch or the Mm. vanilla. And rum does smell delicious. Oh, it's like the Uh best smell. I walked into a seminar room yesterday at the UK Rum Fest 
And it was just filled with Jamaican high ester um, because it was a worthy park seminar. And I just walked in there and I was like, oh, my God, I love the smell of this room. Um, And so that was, you know, I think I started with some earlier concepts of what rum is. But then I started to meet some really influential people in the rum world or, or be exposed to more interesting rums over time. Um, and I came to the UK rum fest 10 years ago for the first time and started to get some more exposure. So I would say even when I started a distillery, I didn't know everything about rum that Mm. I needed to know. (laughs) I was a bit naive and a bit undereducated, but what I do remember was, was going on a mission um, years ago before Montagna Distillers to buy all these different what I thought were high-end rums you know the price point seemed high-end whatever and then sitting down and tasting them and being like I don't like that one I love that one this one maybe tastes good but I think it's a little oversweetened or you know I started to really be able to hone in on the fact that I was more of a fan of the rums that came from Central and South America than I was from the island Caribbean styles. Um, I started to differentiate between uh, agricole styles and, you know, esters and congeners and what was contributing to all the flavors in the rum. It took me a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still am learning every single day. Um, but what I loved during that time was the sense of like this whole, like stepping into the the room of like whoa you know i'm sure people feel this when they're into whiskey or scotch or something they step into the room with the scotch people and they're like whoa you know i wouldn't have had that with the scotch people but i fully had that with the rum people the first time i met another person who was like no i'm a serious rum fan i was like what like i've never met another serious rum fan for 10 years probably i hadn't met another so you weren't, you know, a rum tourist, as I say. Like, did you go to the islands? So you were in Guatemala just to go to Guatemala, and you I happened was. upon their rum? I was, well, first I was in Belize to go to Belize, and I happened upon their rum, which is, you know, like the one barrels, the five barrels. Um, and I, you know, they're fine. Like, nothing special there. But the thing I discovered in Belize was Marie Sharps, which is this hot sauce that this woman named Marie um, has been making in Belize forever and it's sort of the national product of Belize and everybody who's ever been to Belize is like oh yeah of course Marie Sharps and she created this amazing company that was doing business as a force for good in Belize because Belize was pretty poor when she started she was using locally grown ingredients carrots and in her case and chili peppers and um And she was making something really quite exceptional. Um, But it was really her story and her mission and what she wanted to give back to her community and to, you know, the schools and the people. And that was that resonated for me even more than the than the rum. Mm -hmm. But we did drive around um, all these back roads trying to find the distillery of one barrel, you know, and eventually I remember seeing the, the, the wash tanks and the, you know, like in the distance, but you couldn't get through the fence. And it was like, they didn't get the concept of a tasting room, right. or like a public <laughs> interface. So, um, so, but then we went to that same trip, we went to Guatemala and that's where I discovered 
the, that there was this whole concept of mountain rum. So, you know, in my rum world, people have a lot of different feelings about Ron's Kappa. It's Solera method, which, you know, in the world of aging is not as well respected as some of the other types of aging. It's got, you know, added sweetening, etc. Whatever. Again, I don't really care because it was a pivotal moment for me discovering Ron Zacapa, discovering the Exo Ron Zacapa, which, you know, is, is their kind of elevated spirit, learning that they did take their barrels up to 7,000 feet in the mountains to age, trying to understand why would you do that? What makes sense about that process? Starting, that was the beginning of my uh, excitement about learning more about sugarcane. I'm kind of a, a geek about sugarcane because I have had to spend so much time figuring out how to source sustainable sugarcane. Um, I've had to really learn a lot about how it's grown and where it's grown and what are the challenges. Um, but Ron Zacapa was the aha moment. Um, and, you know, I, I sometimes hate the fact that in my rum world, you know, that's, again, people sort of shake their heads like, oh, Ron Zacapa, roll their eyes, whatever. Um, but for me, it was learning about a mountain tradition of rum. That was the aha moment. Um, when, when you were there, did you already, were you already thinking about the distillery? I mean, was that... That like, was about creating the, that trip was the uh, birth. Okay, so was, no, I was thinking about moment. I was thinking mm-hmm. about a career change. Okay, um, and I'd been a brand builder and a graphic designer for twelve years. At that point, um, I was doing people's logos and designing their marketing campaigns and their websites. I was self-taught on all levels. So that was when I referred to then spending quite a lot of time being a maker. I was making you know, collaterals for other people's companies. Um, I would design trade show booths and all of this uh, stuff. And at the end of every project, I would just hand it over to someone else and say, here you go. Good luck. I hope your business does great. And I had said to my husband on the begin at the beginning of that trip, sitting on tobacco key in Belize, I had said, I just give everything I do away. Mm-hmm. I want to keep it at the end of the day. I want my own brand. I want to build my own brand. And uh, he had a business at the time that could support us if I kind of gave up my graphic design clients. And um, so then learning about the mountain tradition, that began a real passionate exploration. All of a sudden you were like, wait a sec, I still wanted that brewery. Now it's <laughs> right. that little, little thing was unlocked in your brain. Exactly. <sighs> and then um, there's, you know, a mountain tradition, not just in Guatemala, but in Colombia and in Panama and all these other places where they came to recognize the value of temperature change in the barrel, altitude, pressure, mountain water, all these things that I had never once heard in the rum world, because you know, people in it's the usually Caribbean, island stuff, right? Like they get hot. water from rain, mm-hmm. and rain has heavy metals, and so they filter it. Mm-hmm. They RO filter it, and so it's not something that they talk with pride about, like they do in Scotland about the water that really contributes so much of the minerality to Scotch. And in Colorado, you're surrounded by water, aka snow. You know. It's water. We are in the capital of the best water Uh in the world. There's no question. And the water that I use comes down as snow and rain and percolates 350 feet through the, the ground to get to an aquifer. That is where I pull it from. 
And so imagine, you know, back in high school, I don't know if you had to do this back in your high school, um, but in biology, you know, you'd have to build like the filtration system. Oh, yeah, They'd yeah. give you like the little plastic box that had, you know, and you'd with like, the level and you'd like layer different things on and you would have to demonstrate how you filtered water. Well, I had such clear memories of that. And so I could picture how, oh, right, like if you can pull your water from an aquifer after natural filtration through moss or stone or, you know, material, just natural material, then you're not going to have to RO filter it, reverse osmosis filter it, and then you're going to get a more flavorful water component. And water is 60% of what's in any bottle of rum, any bottle of any spirit, but any bottle of rum, if it's obviously, if it's at you know, 80 proof, um, not always that, you know, some of these higher proof spirits are not, they don't mm-hmm. have that high a content. Um, but so that was again, like this whole thinking process of like, okay, mountain tradition, really good water, water filtration. Um, so then of course I moved on to sugarcane. I was like, sugarcane. Okay. So where's the best sugarcane? Um, and at the time I gravitated toward the Hawaiian growers because the, they were, I felt more sustainable. Mm -hmm. I went deep on looking at Paraguay and Uruguay organic sugarcane and I couldn't get comfortable with the child labor portion of it. Like there was, you know, you can't, to me, you can't grow something that's organic and say it's organic and then have kids, you right, know, out in the field chopping cane with but, cobras and, you know, whatever. But you're not like, paying like a cent a minute. Exactly. An and overexposed to the, you know, elements and underhydrated and all that stuff. So that was the beginning of my thinking about like, how do I find sugarcane that I can feel good about the industry? Um, so I started buying from Hawaii, but I would buy it out of the commodity market in California from HCNS, which mm-hmm. is Hawaii cane and sugar company. Um, and, um, I, you know, it was just pretty clear to me pretty early on that I didn't think it was what they were telling me it was. Um, so I asked HCNS to certify that it was American grown because then I could feel better about some of the environmental aspects and they wouldn't. And they said, you've, in order to, uh, for us to certify it, you have to take it directly from us in Hawaii and ship it yourself. You can't take it out of the market in Colorado, in California. So then I started pricing that out and I was like, that is insanely expensive. Like I can't even uh-huh. fathom how I would ever make a bottle of rum out of that sugarcane. So um, that was the beginning of my search for a mainland sugarcane supplier, which I eventually found after five years of hard work. Um, but they walked into my distillery, these growers from Louisiana, and that was the beginning of this beautiful family relationship where they, she's from Crested Butte. She was born in Crested Butte, Colorado. She grew up in the Gunnison Valley. They met in my town and they're um, sugarcane growers in Louisiana. So that that's a whole other, you know, I just skipped like years uh, forward, but uh, it's, it's just an example of what I have been doing, which is um, really working hard to know about every impact and every aspect of the business and try to be a good steward. 
Of course. Um, well, let's just for everyone go back to Guatemala a little. So when you got back, or should I say, when you got back from Guatemala, you're like, okay, this is it. I, mm-hmm. This is this is it. It was crazy. <laughs> I was like, it is so it. Luckily, my husband was in his company had a very seasonal aspect to it. So in May, um, when when we got back from this trip, he was kind of in a chill time of his work. So I was like, "Will you help me?" And he was like, "Of course." You did, know, wait, wait. Did he this. like? Does he like rum as well, as much he, as you? He does now. <laughs> I wouldn't say that he was as much of a fanatic about it back then. Okay. Um, he's been more of a. Um, I mean, I, I think back then he would have said he was a gin guy. Okay. Um, but, but he was on. He was with you. He, he was, was like, so with me, yeah. and he's got so many amazing skills that I do not have, um, and so. Like literally from May first to November first, we created a distillery. I mean, it was um, I. You know, I can't even tell you all the things that we did in that time. But chose a still, ordered a still from Portugal, had it shipped, got the TTB paperwork submitted, watched like every single video about distilling on the American Distilling Institute website. <laughs> And read, you know, bought the books of like, co- you know, the the coffee table books like Rum by um, David Broom, um, and read everything. I was just like somewhat obsessed. And we both had our day jobs and two kids, so it was. Co- and I was building a preschool at the time because there was no preschool in my town, and so I was like f- raising, you know, a million dollars to build a preschool and raising these two small children and, you know, anyway, you, you can imagine. Um, it was crazy times. But at the same time, I was, like, creating a bar inside our distillery and um, creating a cocktail menu for that bar. Did you have space in the distillery? I mean, you had to find a place to actually have a distillery. Right. We found this amazing 800-square-foot uh, building oh boy. Um, <laughs> in, that was freestanding, and it had been a brothel. And it had like four hour firewalls of stone, you know, so in the world of distilling, you worry a lot about firewalls and trench drains and, you know, how can you make the fire department, the fire inspectors, the IBC, you know, all the, the international building code, how can you make all of them happy? All right. This building so you, was so like this, perfect. It was like, it was there for you. It yeah. was waiting for you. And it was cheap. You know, uh-huh. this was Silverton um, when it was seriously economically depressed. And it was off the main street. So um, so I said, yeah, let's sign a lease on this building. And it had a little, like, I think it was almost like someone's kitchen originally. Uh, I think this was a private house originally. Um, but someone had turned it into a little, like, nightclub in the meantime. Like, tiny nightclub. And I had gone dancing there before, so I knew about it. So there was this little L-shaped bar. It was tiny. Um, it was meant to be the, the whole bar. thing. It just, uh-huh. if you could, if I could transport you right now back to that day, it was like being in the hold of a pirate ship, um, with a bartender. It was like the coolest little speakeasy kind of feel to it. We were only open from four to 7 PM, four days a week. Um, and because of this phenomenon of this thing called Silverton mountain in the winter, which was this cult ski area that people would come from all over the world to ski at. Um, 
the doors would open at 4 p.m. Oh, that and every we would be totally standing room only. Um, and people would ca- try to call ahead. So to you were order new. You all were on something here. Yeah, it was happening. And so then we slowly were incrementally increasing our hours and our days of the week. Well, you know, we still only we still call last call at 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. Always. That will never change. So what I was going to say is. Um, you can you can watch as many I could watch as many videos that the American Distilling you know have on YouTube, but I definitely wouldn't know how to make a rum. Sure. Did you, you know, were you? I don't want to use the word scared, but did you think, God, that the the liquid that's going to come out is it going to be good enough? You know, how did you know what? Well, the, what the, the reason I was most scared was because reel back in time. I had decided, and I, you know, I probably shouldn't say this on, you know, live, but it's, I decided to make rum on my stovetop um, at home. And so being from Maine, being raised in a lobster fishing family where I would go out with my uncle and pull pots in the Penobscot Bay of Maine, you know, we, you have to have a lobster pot. Everybody from Maine has a lobster pot, right? It doesn't matter if you live in Colorado. Turns out a lobster pot's a great way to make rum. So put it on the stovetop, you know, elevate a little section in the middle um, out of the the. Be careful wash. what you say here. Yeah. <laughs> People may be doing it. Oh, right. <laughs> no, I'm deep. <laughs> and then, you, you know, I just turned the domed lid of the lobster pot over, which created the condensation, cooled it a little bit from the top, and it would drip the rum back into the little cup on the little raised thing this. in the middle. Uh-huh. So, um but the rum, I was like, ah, that is not the best thing I've ever tasted. Um, of course, it wasn't aged, and I didn't understand cuts yet. I didn't understand how right. to make cuts. So it had heads in it. It had tails in it. It was all confused. There, were, Yeah. So there was a lot of learning to do after that. Um, Did you have the idea of the taste of an old monk? In your head when no, you were no, you no, were, were I was off. pretty were... sure that what I was doing and the reason I was doing it was to create unsweetened rum. Okay, um, because all the rums, the Old Monk, the Methuselah, the Ranzacapas, the um, Diplomaticos, the you know everything was too sweet for me. Uh, I don't have much of a sweet palate, and so what I would what I realized I would spend time doing was trying to tone down the sweetness of the rum in all the cocktails that I made. So a lot of times you get a sweet cocktail with rum because it just means you're not fighting the spirit. Um, Now in this age of these premium rums that are unsweetened Mm -hmm. and there's this beautiful movement toward eliminating sugar. Right. And regulation. Eliminating additive sugar after distillation. Mm -hmm. um, Then all of a sudden you don't have to fight the the rum anymore you can make these incredible daiquiris and incredible you know old fa- rum old fashions and um it doesn't have to be sweet anymore um and so i've really that was like an aha moment for me was i'm making i'm doing this to make the rum i want to drink because it doesn't yet in my world exist and how long did that take between setting up the still to what you the first batch oh, came out. Fantastic. And I was happy with it. The only thing I wasn't happy with was that we were only able to age it for like six weeks before we opened the doors. And so the first rums were um, really green, really fresh. Um, 
and needed some age, I thought. And so now, you know, the rums I've been serving at the UK Rum Festival are three and four years aged, um, two, three, four years aged, and we're about to release a new four-year. And, you know, for some people, they probably think that doesn't sound like a whole lot of age, but most rums that that you read the age statement on, if it says it's seven years, a lot of times that's the oldest rum right. in the bottle. So it may even be a drop. It may be a couple ounces of seven uh-huh. year and everything else is younger. Okay. Um, every rum that I make is a single barrel and it's 100% aged for the time that I say it is. It's not blended. And so um, so if it's a, if it's a four-year-old, it's all four years old. Um, and so that, that's been my big coup of the last decade is to try to age more rum for longer. Mm-hmm. People always say, well, why don't you have a 10 year old or an 11 year old? And I'm like, cause I had to sell it all to survive. Well, I was going to bring that up. Uh, so you, you said the first batch you were, oh, this is it. I'm oh, great. Well, so good. you obviously wanted to make this a business. When did you, or how did you get the word out there? And, oh, and also, was it always called Montagna? You know, did you say, oh, we're going to call it Montagna? Yes. Which, to me, is the French word for mountain, but... But it's know. also the Spanish word. Oh, the Spanish word. word. Yeah, I don't speak Spanish. For mountain. Um, uh-huh. It was, like, literally the decision to call it Montagna took 42 seconds. Okay. Uh, I don't know how it just emerged, but that was the name from the beginning that I was like, that's the name. Um, but I also knew that we couldn't spell it with the traditional Spanish enye, um, or the tilde on the N, because people would say, in the U.S., would say Montana. We didn't want to be Montana rum. Right. So I added the Y to be Montana rum so that we could trademark it, so it was unique to us. Um, and people would actually pronounce it correctly when they I said it. Ideally, <laughs> that would be, how cool would that be? No, everybody <laughs> says Montana. Oh. Um, and a lot of people say a lot of really interesting oh. things. Um, my approach is just to repronounce it back to them um, right. when they as long say as they're drinking wrong. it, they can yeah. Call it whatever that's they want. exactly how I feel. I'm like <laughs> you said it. That's that makes me happy. Um, so you know, how many did you start from day one? Okay, I've got a bottle of it. I'm going to start to sell it. You know, introduce it to everyone I can. You know, we did. Yeah. So that first bottling was like. Uh, 400 and something bottles of rum and uh, we had this tasting room so we opened the doors and we poured tastes and we made cocktails and um, it was busy and vibrant from the first minute and then um, I was just telling the story yesterday in a seminar with Richard Seal that I um, I would pack the truck with, I could fit 44 cases in the cab of the pickup truck. I wouldn't put it in the back because I didn't have a cover. And I would leave the distillery and I wasn't allowed by my own set of rules. I wasn't allowed to come home until I had sold it all. So I'd like drive to Boulder and walk into a liquor store and say, hey, I'm making this craft rum in Colorado and do you want some? And they would say, sure. You know, like to a person. They would taste it, and then they would say, yeah, sure. And the the label was janky as heck back then. Like, it was, you know, even though I was a brand builder, like, it's come a long way since then. I didn't know how to design a liquor brand. You know, I was really shooting from the hip. Um, but I would 
go out, sell the 44 cases, take their checks, come home, deposit them, be home with my kids for a week, pack the truck up, go out with another 44 cases, sell those. It was so organic. Um, it always has been really organic. Um, and then I walked into Republic National Distributing Company in Denver. You know, the multi-million, I mean, I think they're multi-billion dollar company walk through the you know the floor to ceiling door into the corner office with the president of rndc um they were distributing so many of the big brands that you know of and i met with the sort of leaders of rndc this man jim smith who still is like he passed away a couple years ago which was devastating to me because he was my first real supporter in the industry um and I said, do you guys want to carry our rum um, and distribute it for us in Colorado? And he said, sure. And I was like, wait, did you just say yes? <laughs> Where's the battle here? Right? Um, I thought I was going to have to fight. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no. And, you know, and they, RNDC Colorado has been in my corner in such a huge way for so long. And they have, you know, taken, they've sold more rum than I can even talk about and they've grown their business with us every quarter consistently double digits it's rare for them to have a quarter that isn't you know 12 14 17 percent growth on the brand Um, without us having a single paid sales rep in the market we don't have um, we're not pumping money we're not paying for placements we're just working just making good stuff with with these people Mm -hmm. who we love. So, you know, I know that to many people, they don't talk about the distribution side very much because it's kind of unsexy, but I am so grateful for that relationship. They've taught me a lot about the language. They taught me to speak the language of distribution, like, you know, free goods and and all the things that you say when you're talking to reps that they, that's the language they understand. Of course. Well, let's talk about the liquid itself. So you had this fabulous first run. Um, you know, how, how did it grow? Because you have a lot of other expressions. Kind of talk me through the, um, just the how, the, how sure. it went. How it went. Yeah. Why did you decide to add more or, or, you know, or not just continue with that one? Right. Well, um, we started with the Platino and the Oro from day one. The two, you know, our two-year-old rums that are kind of the core of our business. Um, and we put out, you know, we went into a lot of competitions early on just to try to understand and get validation mm-hmm. from the judge community. And we won 24 gold and silver medals oh, yeah. right off the right. bat. And so, um, so that was exciting for us to be like, we're not the only ones that think this is good. Cause it could have been like, we could have been sitting there in our little, old brothel in Silverton, Colorado, drinking rum and being like, we think it's good. Does anybody else think it's good? So that kind of put us on the map, Mm -hmm. I would say, where we were, people were paying attention. Um, People in the rum world were paying attention. And then um, I would say it took a long time for me to have the bandwidth to even think about any other releases. But the Exclusiva, which was our, our first other release, is only, I don't know, three or four years ago. I wish I remembered exactly. Um, And that came about because 
I had a mentor early on who was this guy, Jake Norris. Um, he was making whiskey in Denver for Stranahan's amazing, uh, just committed craft distiller, very obsessed with process, Mm -hmm. very obsessed with fermentation. And, you know, he, he was just the geek I needed at that time. And we would meet for a drink in a dive bar in, um, in Denver and just talk for hours about everything. And he never cut me off. He never said, you're not going to be able to pull this off. He never said what a stupid idea to make rum. Um, he just was like, which I'm assuming that a lot of people did. Oh yeah. Yeah. People were like, there's no, rum is not a mountain thing. I'm like, yes, it is. And I would educate people, but it took a long time to Mm -hmm. really get people over that hump. Um, but so Jake was at the time he was making this whiskey called the snowflake. You could only get it at the distillery. People would line up around the distillery, um, for the release because you know and at night like the night before to get their spot and it was just so unique uh it was the first time i'd really encountered this concept of you know double and triple maturation where you're taking something and putting it in a finishing barrel Mm -hmm. that's not really part of the world of rum rum people tend to blend you know they pick different spirits from different barrels and they put them together to get those subtleties. I've always been a single barrel rum. So for me, I wasn't looking for a blend to create a blend. I wasn't looking to put up different barrels of different styles and then put them together. Um, I wanted, I discovered with, with Jake, this concept of double maturation, triple maturation. And he was making the snowflake where he took the whiskey out of a new whiskey barrel which is what they have to do is put it in a new barrel. Mm-hmm. He'd age it for, I don't know, three years or something in the new whiskey barrel. And then he would finish it in a Cabernet Franc French oak barrel. And I don't, I'm not much of a whiskey fan. I loved that stuff. Mm-hmm. I loved that snowflake. I would, you know, beg him as like my geeky friend to save me a bottle of it. Would he please? And of course he was amazing that way. And he did. Um, and that was the beginning of the exclusiva. So I was like, okay, I want to take the Oro and age it a little longer, two and a half years, and then move it into a French oak barrel that previously held port. That was my, again, there are all these little nods that you see in the company to things. So Montagna, Oro, Platino, exclusiva, the Spanish is a nod to the fact that I discovered my rum tradition in Central America, in the Spanish-speaking regions of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am still more affiliated with those traditions. Like, I think some of the more exciting rums right now are coming, are going to be coming out of, like, Medellin, Colombia. Um, people are excited about Claren from uh, from Haiti. You know, I love it. I love uh, juice, you know, whole juice, fresh juice made rum um but that's not going to be my go-to i tend to be really affiliated with these like cane syrup rums or whole cane rums Mm -hmm. or you know rums that take the whole sugarcane juice and cook it for a period of time and then use the products of that cooking process Um, that's what i do so i'm only 12 Mm percent molasses most rum makers are 100 percent molasses Mm -hmm. I use the percentage of molasses that's in the original stock of sugarcane. Okay. 
Um, and I use all the rest of it too, but it's been, it's had the water and the fiber solids removed for me by my mm-hmm. mill in Louisiana. Um, so that was the exclusive. I was like, I wanted to move it into a cask of some sort. I, I had a winery mm-hmm. in Colorado that I just loved. And that is hard for me to say, cause there are a lot of wineries in Colorado that I do not love. Um, but this one winery called Sutcliffe was being made by this Brit, um, in this like red sandstone growing area. It was the <laughs> most unusual, again, like the most unusual winery in the world. The, the in wine, Colorado, right. Which... The wine was exceptional. It's mm-hmm. sold, you know, sells for $40 a bottle in Colorado. It's very highly prized. Mm-hmm. And I went to them and said, can I get some barrels from your Cabernet Sauvignon, your port? They do double, you know, they take uh-huh. this, they first age the Cabernet and then age the port. And they said, sure. Um, so I got, started getting barrels from them, started aging this exclusiva, brought it out at three years and I was like, I'm home. You know, uh-huh. this is, it's finishes so dry and tannic, doesn't have any added sugar, has a minuscule, tiny touch of added honey from the bees around our distillery. Non-traditional in the rum world, but I don't care. I've been non-traditional in the, tr- in the rum world since day one. Um, and uh, it, that's what you tasted the other day at the mm-hmm. sketch event. And that's what I did a tasting of, um, at, on this ship in, on the Thames <laughs> on Thursday night, which was so fun. And, um, so yeah, I mean, that's where that came from. And then I went to triple maturation with the, with the anniversaria, um, where I then took that exclusiva and put it into a bourbon cask at the end. Ooh. And the bourbon cask, this was a celebration of our 10th anniversary. So it was a nod to my other mentor, which is the the guys who started Peach Street Distillers, a very farm-connected, beautiful distillery in Palisade, Colorado. I, I don't hear about them as much anymore, but they, um, they are really the, one of the originals for me, making a, a bunch of different spirits. So they made... Vodka, gin, whiskey. They also made brandies. They made this pear brandy that they put the bottles out in the orchard around the pears and grew the pears inside the bottles and then put the pear Mm -hmm. brandy in. So when you bought the pear brandy, it had a full grown pear inside the bottle. Amazing people. And um, they also mentored and taught me from a very early point. They also had a beautiful tasting room, which Jake Norris's distillery did not have so you know they weren't making craft cocktails yet um we were really one of the first in colorado and in the united states to have a craft cocktail program in our Mm. distillery um but they were making cocktails in their distillery and i was like you can do that you know so that started um Uh i mean we had a we had that from the very beginning but before i actually opened the doors I realized what was possible legally, what was possible with the um, regulatory environment in Colorado, which has been incredibly favorable to distillers um, because of the beer world, I think, and the wine world. So, yeah, that was this. So then triple maturation came along, bourbon cask from Peach Street to say thank you in series to all of my mentors for our 10th anniversary. And then we sold it off at 100 bucks a bottle, um, 
you know, very quickly and had to do a second release of it, sold that off quickly and donated a bunch of money to the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory and the um, Women's Distillery Guild. So the Biological Laboratory has the longest running consecutive collected data on climate change in the world, happens to be in the valley in which I live. Um, And the Women's Distillery Guild was an organization that I founded um, to try to do a better job of providing support and mentorship to young younger distillers, younger distillery founders coming up in the system, wanting to do, um, you know, wanting to do a distillery, but not really knowing how or feeling like there were not enough women uh, to, to admire in the process. So we kind of created this ability for the younger distillers to connect with the older distillers and get mentored in different ways. Mm -hmm. That's been incredibly satisfying. We just merged in with Women of the Vine and Spirits, which is um, a New York-based industry group. And now it's kind of blown up. Now, usually at this point, I would be like, "You, I just have to try some of that anniversario and let's have a drink. But I really want you to touch on something that you brought up a little bit, because I think it's so important. And it's something that in doing research on you, I found that it's a big part of your uh, distillery, which is sustainability. And I don't want to leave you without talking about all the different things that you do to make your your distillery sustainable that maybe other people who are listening might want to do as well. So could you tell me a little bit more about that or describe it? Sure. Well, we're the only certified B Corp rum distillery in the world. We're only one of three certified distilleries in the world. The B Corp is the gold standard, I believe, and I think most people believe, of third-party verification of environmental and social responsibility claims. So you could say all day that, you know, and, and many rum distilleries are starting to say, we are sustainable, we are, you know, we believe, we care. Um, But if you go deep, you know that it's just a marketing campaign. Mm -hmm. It's not part of their deep ethos. For me, and I don't really, I'm, you know, I, I could go all the way back to my childhood on a pond in Maine, you know, talking to my dad about the black duck and protecting, you know, he was, he was very upset about the EPA telling him we couldn't build our house close to a pond. And that was the beginning of me arguing with my dad over environmental stuff. Um, and he came a long way in his lifetime. He passed away 20 two years ago, but he came a long way um, toward becoming an environmentalist. Um, But I guess I kind of came out of the womb that way or something, um, because it's been important to me from the very beginning. And so it's not something in Montana that we decided, hey, let's try to do this. It's kind of trendy. People are, people care. Let's get a certification here or something. It's like deeply ingrained in the business. Um, So You know, with the B Corp, they evaluate 200 different aspects of how you do business from where you bank to, um, you know, because banks invest Mm -hmm. in oil and gas exploration and and for deforestation in Brazil and things like that. And so, you know, they care about every single thing you do as a company. Where does your trash go? How much solid waste are you is leaving your building 
Where does your energy come from? Are you using GMO products? Um, what is your packaging like? How is, is the paper that you make all your printed materials with? Um, I mean, I could go on for mm-hmm. a really long time, but I would bore the heck out of everybody, I think. But it's a really deep analysis. So first you go through the self-analysis and you answer all the 200 questions and you provide some documentation. And then they audit you. So in order to be certified, you get a random selection of all of those questions and they go deeper with you and they audit the, the physical evidence, um, whatever it is. You, they might even call your you know, waste management or they might call your power company or something to verify. And so we, we did that. It took about six months. I hired an intern to kind of shepherd the process with me because I had a lot of other things to do. And we got our B Corp certification and, um, and it, it just, to me, it's like, it allows people to not just take my word for it. Um, so if people go to our website at montanyarum.com, they'll find a list of all the daily practices of the company from the bar and restaurant, um, doing everything possible to reduce our waste. We're not zero waste yet. I actually am worried that we're never going to get to the zero waste point because I don't trust the recycling world anymore and and recycling is unraveling. And so I could say, yes, I took my plastic to the recycling properly, but I don't know that it's getting properly handled on the other side of that. So, but we do so many things like we buy all of our merchandise, our logo shirts and our logo hats are made from recycled material or Um, you know, various different fabrics, sustainable fabrics, not just organic cotton that came over from China, but like real reused material. Same with our hats. Um, The plastic closures and things are recycled plastic made from old water bottles. Like it goes so deep. Um, When we go, when we went on our retreat this year, we had some new staff and I forgot to tell them that they can't use single use cups and single use um, lunch containers and things like that, that the whole retreat was going to be zero waste. And so, you know, they got there and I was like, oh gosh, how are you going to get a coffee if we're on the road, you know, if you didn't bring a cup? So we had to turn around and like go get cups for everybody. Um, and now I like carry, you know, these bins of re- reusable coffee cups or re- shot glasses or, you know, I'm working with a new rep in New York and a new rep in New Jersey, and I have to equip them so that they're not using plastic <laughs> cups. And we do all zero waste events. And I had to choose just being here at um, Rumfest, like to not have um, to not participate in events that had plastic tasting right. cups and things like that. It's not so easy. No, it's. It, I have to give up some opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like at Tales of the Cocktail in Louisiana, I do all my own events I can't participate in other people's because I can't control it and Tails is just has a colossal amount of plastic mm-hmm. involved um, so I have to kind of pull out and do my own events um, well let's now pull out some of that rum and toast to you and what you're doing <laughs> for this environment okay because I'm getting emotional now <laughs> thanks so much to Karen for being on the show If we have any female distillers out there, check out the website womenofthevine.com to find out more info and connect with others. If you want to know more about your business becoming B certified, just head to bcorporation.net. Join the club.
Now, of course, it's time for that cocktail of the week. The sour is one of the oldest family of drinks, appearing in Jerry Thomas's 1862 cocktail classic recipe book, How to Mix Drinks. Technically, the sour consists of one spirit mixed with citrus and some kind of sweetener. Egg white appeared later in The Flowing Bowl by William Schmidt, written in the 1890s. The difference between a sour and a daiquiri is the citrus here is a lemon and the daiquiri's is a lime. So here is Montagna Distiller's take on the classic rum sour, our cocktail of the week. In a shaker, add the following. One ounce fresh lemon juice, 0.75 ounces of simple syrup, 0.5 ounces of pasteurized egg white, and 2.5 ounces of Montagna's Exclusiva Rum. Add ice and shake. Then pour it over a king ice cube into a rocks glass and garnish with an amarina cherry. If you're making your simple syrup, then add two cups of sugar and two cups of water to a saucepan and bring to a boil. Stir it occasionally and then let it cool. And you can refrigerate that up to two weeks. You'll find this recipe, more rum recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. I remember the day when I discovered rum. It was in a newfangled cocktail that was taking New York City by storm in the 90s and called the Mojito. Overnight, it was on everyone's menu and we couldn't get enough of rum. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Also, you know how much I love to talk about cocktails and we can all be together talking on the flick.group slash lushlife app. It's free to join and works on Android or iOS devices. Plus, you can listen to the latest episodes right there if you want to catch up. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always, and will be forever, produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, as you know, the second part was mine. Up and coming on Lush Life, we move to the other side of the world with a crash course on sake. Until next time, bottoms up.